Good evening, my sweet little phantoms. I'm Lady Lilia McCobb, your hostess for the night, and I do hope that this year has been kind to you all. As the new year approaches and rings in, I know several of you may be tempted to make a wish or two, but darlings, please, let these three stories for tonight's special be a warning of what may happen if you aren't careful what you wish for. To start us off, we have a favorite of mine. You've heard of the childhood friends to lovers trope time and time again, I'm sure. But if it were you, would you be able to go your whole life knowing your lifelong friend and partner had a secret that they kept from you? Surely you'd wish for them to tell you at least once. I know I would at least, but without further ado, let's read the tale of the yellow ribbon. <laughs> Jane wore a yellow ribbon around her neck every day. And I mean every day. Rain or shine, whether it matched her outfit or not. It annoyed her best friend Johnny after a while. He was her next-door neighbor and had known Jane since she was three. When he was young, he had barely noticed the yellow ribbon, but now they were in high school together, it bothered him. Why do you wear that yellow ribbon around your neck, Jane? He'd ask her every day. But... She wouldn't tell him. Still, in spite of this aggravation, Johnny thought she was cute. He asked her to the soda shop for an ice cream sundae, and then he asked her to watch him play in the football game. Then he started seeing her home, and come the spring, he asked her to the dance. Jane always said yes when he asked her out, and she always wore a yellow dress to match the ribbon around her neck. It finally occurred to Johnny that he and Jane were going steady and he still didn't know why she wore the yellow ribbon around her neck. So he asked her about it yet again, and once more, she did not tell him. Maybe someday I'll tell you about it, she would reply. Someday. That answer annoyed Johnny, but he shrugged it off because Jane was so cute and fun to be with. They planned a big wedding, and Jane hinted that she might tell him about the yellow ribbon around her neck on their wedding day. Somehow, what with the preparations and his beautiful bride and the lovely reception, Johnny never got around to asking Jane about it, and when he did remember, she got a bit teary-eyed and said, We're so happy together, what difference does it make? And Johnny decided she was right. Johnny and Jane raised a family of four with the usual ups and downs, laughter and tears. When their golden anniversary rolled around, Johnny once again asked Jane about the yellow ribbon around her neck. It was the first time he'd brought it up since the week after their wedding. Whenever their children asked him about it, he'd always hushed them, and somehow none of the kids had dared to ask their mother. Jane gave Johnny a sad look and said, Johnny, you've waited this long. You can wait a while longer. And Johnny agreed. It was not until Jane was on her deathbed a year later that Johnny, seeing his last chance slip away, asked Jane one final time about the yellow ribbon she wore around her neck. She shook her head a bit at his persistence and then said with a sad smile, Okay, Johnny, you can go ahead and untie it. With shaking hands, Johnny fumbled for the knot and untied the yellow ribbon around his wife's neck and Jane's head fell off. If I may be candid here, I feel like if I were in his shoes, 
I don't think I'd ever be able to forgive myself for the situation that befell the couple in the end. Patience may be a virtue, but does that necessarily mean that it's only good that comes from it? Just because it's virtuous doesn't mean all things shouldn't be taken in moderation, if you ask me. But if you don't, well, there's always the next story. <laughs> to tell the tale of a queen's opulence, I'll be sharing this story I stumbled on rather last second for this episode. Without further ado, I present to you the Queen's Palace. <laughs> In a far-off eastern land many centuries ago, there lived a great queen, so the legend goes. A queen who had her subjects built her a magnificent palace. It was made from marble white as milk, embossed with pure gold and regular patterns that shimmered up and down each wall. Diamonds sparkled in gleaming patterns on painted panels here and there and everywhere. In the magnificent gardens, silvery fountains played and peacocks strutted and golden fishes swam in rich blue pools, whilst rainbows of flowers offered up their heady scents and bees buzzed and small birds sang melodiously. The palace was considered by many to be a foretaste of paradise upon this earth. What was more, in the courtyards of this palace, all the wise philosophers of the land would discourse, and all the great poets would recite, and all the best musicians would play their finest music. Books containing all the knowledge then in the world lined the walls of her library. Fine embroideries hung from the walls, costly carpets covered the floors, and each box and table and bench and screen was a marvel of the decorator's art. All the greatest inventions of the day were contained in special rooms within the palace, and there was always a welcome for those bringing new discoveries and new knowledge. Amid all this beauty and luxury and wonder and learning, the queen was unmoved and less than happy. She was ambitious, proud, and also knowledgeable. She knew that there were, at that time, many other monarchs in the world and that many of them flaunted their wealth as she did in palaces that might be just as fine as her own. She secretly wanted her own palace to be considered better than any other in the world and resented the thought that travelers might arrive in her lands with tales of greater wealth. Because of this, she lived in a state of secret worry and fear that made her always restless. This queen also had storytellers who told her the legends of wishing, such as the great tale of the king and the magnificent beard, and many other such magical yarns. From this, she had formed her own ideas about how to cheat any giver of wishes into giving her greater power than should be given to any mortal being. And once she had formed this scheme in her mind, she naturally became more and more interested in putting her ideas to the test. She sent her servants and messengers out around her realm and beyond in search of wise men and wizards, enchantresses and mystics, all for one purpose, which was the finding of one amongst them who understood the granting of the three wishes, of which many legends were told. At last, an old woman was found, a doggedly wise lady who refused to be called a witch, or a mistress of spells, or anything of that sort. It was she who explained that the queen needed to revise her ideas. Your majesty, she insisted, the stories of wishes have to be interpreted. No magical being pops out and gives you exactly what you want. 
It's a question of the real desire of your heart. She gave the queen an ordinary-looking little ring and explained that she should wear it and look at it often as she could, bringing to mind her heart's desire as clearly as she could. But she warned, it works three times for any one person, just as in the legends, though you will need to be patient, for it may take time. But still, three wishes and no more. No wish can give you godlike powers, and no one can cheat this rule to get everything they could possibly want. Of course, said the queen, smiling to herself cunningly as she slipped the ring onto her finger. She could hardly wait. She began to think as much as she could about what she wanted, but nothing happened. Not for a whole day, nor for a whole week, not for a whole month. Still, the queen went on trying until one night, as she sat in her room staring at the ring by candlelight and picturing as clearly as she could what she most desired in the world trying to touch it in her imagination. In a strange and magical instant, she knew that something had shifted. There was no explosion, no smoke, no flash of bright and amazing light, nothing of that sort. Only a feeling of knowing that it was working. That the thing she had wished for was coming into being then and there. A palace finer than any that had ever been or could be. A fabulous palace containing every kind of marvel and wonder known and unknown to man and woman. An infinite palace of endless joys and discoveries in which she would never age a minute. A palace she alone would rule. This was the creation with which she would beat the foolish wishing limits and live in perfect pleasure and power. This was what her heart's desires had indeed created. Soon enough, this queen was off and away and into that palace which seemed to grow out of and extend the old palace that had once been such a marvel, though now it appeared to her to have been little more than a hovel. Along vast corridors, paved with rubies and pearls, and draped with cloth soft and delicate as the wings of angels she went, opening doors of solid gold to reveal delightful surprise and extraordinary wonder after delightful surprise and extraordinary wonder. Were it possible to write down a tenth of what she saw and felt and experienced in those incredible rooms, it would fill a hundred large volumes, each containing a million and more words. Perhaps it is possible in imagination to taste some of those tastiest tastes, to smell some of those subtle aromas, to hear some of that sweet music, or, or to wonder at the brightness and power of the colors and the shapes and the patterns. Though, however imaginative a person might be, it is hard to create more than a pale shadow of paradise the queen found herself exploring. From room to room she went, along corridor after corridor, finding new joy and fascinating new discoveries wherever she looked. Whole days went by, whole weeks and months and perhaps even years, but the queen aged not at all. Whenever she felt hungry, fine foods would appear as if from nowhere, always new, always delicious. Whenever she felt that she might be bored, new entertainments would present themselves, or new fascinations, or new perspectives. Whenever she felt tired, beds softer than the finest down floated her through the sweetest of dreams. Whatever clothes she might wish to wear would appear all ready for the wearing. Indeed, she soon put aside the formal royal clothes that had been expected of her at the old palace, and dressed in the most unusual costume she could think of. 
Fabulous creations made of feathers and silks and furs and smothered with jewels of every description, parading herself in front of silver-framed mirrors and loving what she saw with fierce pride. All this was her own creation, forged through the desires of her own heart. And yet that heart was growing heavier within her. And yet there was something missing. The queen was so bound up in all that she was seeing and hearing and tasting and smelling that it took a very long time to notice this feeling growing inside, this weight tugging her down, until it burst forth one day as a feeling of unexpected and devastating sorrow and the bitter tears coursed down her face, smudging the fantastic stage makeup her fancy had applied that day. It was a feeling hard to put a name to, and even harder to believe in when she did. Loneliness. She was desperately and incredibly lonely. She suddenly knew that. There were people in all of the rooms in this fantastic palace, bowing and smiling and offering her this or that or whatever. Different people with each room, handsome people, beautiful people. There were minions who would do whatever she said, entertainers who could enchant her imaginations, singers and instrumentalists who could inspire and bewitch with silky, sinuous sounds. Courtiers did flatter her and tell her she was wonderful, but in the throng that surrounded her, there was no real friends, no one in whom she could confine. No one who understood her as a living, breathing human being. She had sealed herself into her own myth. Recalling with difficulty that she still had the power to command, she dismissed the people who surrounded her. As they went, she had the strange feeling that they were in any case no more than empty phantoms. She found herself wishing with all her heart that she could see beyond them and the trap that she had made for herself to something more sincere. Quite suddenly, the fabulous palace vanished, and she found herself in the midst of a barren wilderness, with a rocky, dusty track winding away into the distance. She staggered along this track for what seemed hours, tripping and stumbling and feeling increasingly desperate and abandoned. The strange and fantastic clothes she wore, soon torn and dusty, and her face was stained with tears and smudged makeup. And then, at last, she saw a small village, clinging to the side of a rocky hill when she reached it and found the ragged peasants who lived there. She announced haughtily, I am your queen, you must do as I say. Yes, of course, your majesty, said the peasants, but... She knew at once they were only humoring her, that they didn't believe her at all. This ragged, strangely painted madwoman arriving from the wildlands. However, they treated her kindly and with respect, offering her food and drink and rest and comfort. It was all very plain fare compared to what she had been used to. Coarse peasant bread and cheese, cold spring water, rough sheets to lie on an untutored peasant talk with None of the fine phrases of the court. Yet she felt oddly much more nourished by it than all the grand banquets and country rhetoric. The queen stayed with those peasants for months, getting to know each one of them and indeed becoming accepted as one of them herself. 
During the first week, she would intend every day to set off down the track to seek her own city in courtiers who might recognize her and treat her as what she was in truth. But as time went by, her life as a queen seemed little more than a remote dream, and she almost forgot about it. The life she lived now was a hard one, and the villagers worked long hours simply to survive. Slowly, she learned to make herself useful. Slowly, she learned to enjoy the simple, unsophisticated pleasures. The joys of company, exchanging gossip, telling old tales around the fire and singing old songs. But from the beginning, what she enjoyed most was the warmth and simple friendliness of these people. They were scarcely saints, but they told you what they thought when they reckoned you needed to hear, and that was something very new. They also seemed to care about her, which was even better. But then there came a terrible drought. Week after week, there was no rain. The crops failed, the animals began to die, and everyone starved, growing weaker by the day. The queen herself was quite unused to this kind of hardship, and became feeble more quickly than the villagers. With scarcely the strength to stir from the straw mattress on which she slept each night, she felt that she would soon die. But before she did so, she wanted with all her being to do something to help these poor people who had taken her in, expecting nothing in return. Curiously, she had forgotten all about the ring upon her finger and the power of wishing until the very moment that this thought became clear in her mind. Looking at it now, she realized she had the power there on her own hand and within herself to escape all this and return to the palace from which this adventure had begun all those years before. Yet she put this thought aside and concentrated hard on the idea of rain and plenty for the village. It took a lot of effort, the very last reserve she had, in fact. With what seemed her final breath, she uttered the words out loud, Save this village and all the people and all the lands and the animals. Bring them health and happiness. And then she sank back. The very last sound she heard were the crack of thunder and the first drops of rain. Then she drifted into shadowy darkness. Opening her eyes again after floating for what seemed like centuries, she thought for a moment she had gone to heaven. So bright and beautiful were the sights around her. But as she grew used to the light, she made out a scene that was somehow very familiar and finally recognized her own beautiful rooms in the original palace. Standing in front of her was the wise old woman who had explained the wishes and given her the ring. Well, your majesty, how were your wishes? The old woman asked with a twinkling smile. The queen blinked and shook herself and then, thanking the old woman with all her heart, slipped the ring off her finger and handed it back. Later, she discovered that only three minutes had passed and she put it on, though she could never quite believe that fully. From that day on, she never ceased to wonder at the marvels in her own palace and to use the treasures and the knowledge within it to benefit all of the people in her lands. I can honestly say that this story caught me a bit off guard. Just when I thought I knew where it was going, I got a pleasant surprise that made me feel the urge to include this one in the special. Is that just me? <laughs> 
To wrap up tonight's program is the story that inspired me to make this podcast in the first place. A tale that has always enthralled me and made me question the true intentions behind wishes or the people claiming to be able to deliver upon them. My darling little phantoms, it's nothing short of my absolute purest pleasure to read the monkey's paw for you all. Without, the night was cold and wet. But in the small parlor of Labernum Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess, the former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical chances, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. Hark at the wind, said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. I'm listening, said the latter grimly, surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. Check. I should hardly think that he's come tonight, said his father, with his hand poised over the board. Mate, replied the son, that's the worst of living so far out, bawled Mr. White with sudden and unlooked-for violence. Of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. Paths a bog and the roads torrent. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses in the road are let, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. There he is, said Herbert White as the gate banged too loudly, and the heavy footsteps came toward the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself, so that Miss White said, Tut tut, and coughed gently as her husband entered the room, followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing him. The Sergeant Major took hands and, taking the preferred seat by the fire, watched contentedly as his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter and he began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts. As he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of wild schemes and doughty deeds, of wars and plagues and strange peoples. Twenty-one years of it,' said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. "'When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in that warehouse. Now look at him. He don't look to have taken much harm.' said Mrs. White politely. I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man. Just look around a bit, you know. Better where you are, said the sergeant major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. I should like to see those old temples and fakirs and jugglers, said the old man. What was it that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw, said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps. 
said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absentmindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him again. To look at, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket. It's just an ordinary little paw and dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. And what is there special about it? inquired Mr. White as he took it from his son and, having examined it, placed it upon the table. It had a spell put on it by an old fakir, said the sergeant major, a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manners were so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter had jarred some. Well, why don't you have three, sir? said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him the way that middle age is wont to regard presumptuous youth. I have, he said quietly, and his blotchy face white. And did you really have the three wishes granted? asked Mrs. White. I did, said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. And has anybody else wished? persisted the old lady. The first man had his three wishes, yes, was the reply. I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. That's how I got the paw. His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. If you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now then, Morris, said the old man at last. What do you keep it for? The soldier shook his head. Fancy, I suppose, he said slowly. I did have some idea of selling it, but I don't think I will. It's caused me enough mischief already. Besides, people won't buy they think it's a fairy tale, some of them, and those who do think anything of it want to try it first and pay me later. If you could have another three wishes, said the old man, eyeing him keenly, would you have them? I don't know, said the other. I don't know. He took the paw and, dangling it between his forefinger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. Better let it burn, said the soldier solemnly. If you don't want it, Morris, said the other, give it to me. I won't, said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his possession closely. How do you do it? he inquired. Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major. But I warn you of the consequences. Sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White, as she rose and began to set the supper. Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket and all three burst into laughter as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back in his pocket and, placing chairs, motioned his friends to the table. 
In the business of supper, the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterward the three sat listening in an enthralled fashion to a second installment of the soldier's adventures in India. It's a tale about the monkey's paw is not more truthful than those he has been telling us, said Herbert, as the door closed behind their guest, just in time to catch the last train. We shan't make much out of it. Did you give anything for it, father? inquired... What? Did you give anything for it, father? inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. A trifle, said he, coloring slightly. He didn't want it, but I made him take it, and he pressed me again to throw it away. Likely, said Herbert with pretended horror. Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with. Then you can't be henpecked. He darted around the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White armed with an antimacassar. Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact, he said slowly. It seems to me I've got all I want. But if you only cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you, said Herbert, with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for two hundred pounds, then. That'll just do it. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity held up the talisman as his son, with a solemn face, somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred pounds, said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted his words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. It moved, he cried with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished, it twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son as he picked it up and placed it on the table. And I bet I never shall. It must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind, though. There's no harm done, but it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again while the two men finished their pipes. Outside, the wind was higher than ever, and the old man started nervously at the sound of the door banging upstairs. A silence unusual and depressing settled on all three, which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the rest of the night. I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert, as he bade them good night and something horrible squatting on top of your wardrobe watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver, he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, he laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room, which it had lacked on the previous night and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which 
betokened no great belief in its virtues. I suppose all old soldiers are the same, said Mrs. White. The idea of our listening to such nonsense. How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, how could 200 pounds hurt you, father? Might drop on his head from the sky, said the frivolous Herbert. Morris said that these things happen so naturally, said his father, that you might, if you so wish, attribute it to coincidence. Well, don't break into the money before I come back, said Herbert as he rose from the table. I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and I shall have to disown you. His mother laughed and, following him to the door, watched him down the road and returning to the breakfast table, was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity, all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired sergeant majors of bibulous habits when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home, she said as they sat at dinner. I dare say, said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer. But for all that, the thing moved in my hand. That I'll swear to. You thought it did, said the old lady soothingly. I say it did, replied the other. There was no thought about it. I just... What's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside, who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with the 200 pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times, he paused at the gate and then walked on again. The fourth time, he stood with his hand upon it and then with sudden resolution, flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White, at the same moment, placed her hands behind her and hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room, and her husband's coat, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to broach him with his business, but he was at first strangely silent. I was asked to call, he said at last, and stopped and picked a piece of cotton from his trousers. I come from Ma and Megan's. The old lady started. Is anything the matter? she asked breathlessly. Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it? Her husband interposed. There, there, mother, he said hastily. Sit down. Don't jump to conclusions. You've not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir. And eyed the other wistfully. I'm sorry, began the visitor. Is he hurt? Demanded the mother wildly. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said quietly. But he's not in any pain. Oh, thank God, said the woman, clasping her hands. Thank God for that, thank... She broke off as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned on her as she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. 
She caught her breath and, turning to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling hand on his. There was a long silence. He was caught in the machinery, said the visitor at length in a low voice. Caught in the machinery, repeated Mr. White in a dazed fashion. Yes. He sat staring out the window and taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it as he had been wont to do in their old courting days nearly forty years before. He was the only one left to us, he said, turning gently to the visitor. It's hard. The other coughed and, rising, walked slowly to the window. The firm wishes me to convey their sincere sympathy with you and your great loss, he said, without turning around. I beg that you will understand I am only their servant and merely obeying orders. There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look such as his friend the sergeant might have carried into his first action. I was to say that Ma and Megan's disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit no liability at all, but... In consideration of your certain services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hands and, rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a slightless man, and dropped in senseless heap to the floor. In the huge new cemetery, some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead and came back to the house steeped in shadows and silence. It was all over so quickly that, at first, they could hardly realize it and remained in a state of expectation as though something else had to happen. Something else which was to lighten this load too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed and expectations gave way to resignation. The hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. Come back, he said tenderly. You'll be cold. It is colder for my son, said the old woman and wept afresh. The sounds of her sobs died away on his ears. The bed was warm and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. The she cried wildly. He started up in alarm. Where? Where is it? What's the matter? She came stumbling across the room toward him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it. It's in the parlor, on the bracket, he replied, marveling. Why? She cried and laughed together and, bending over, kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. 
Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what? He questioned. The other two wishes, she replied rapidly. We've only had one. Was not that enough? He demanded fiercely. No, she cried triumphantly. We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly and wish our boy alive again. The man sat in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. Good God, you are mad, he cried aghast. Get it, she panted. Get it quickly and wish, oh, my boy, my boy. Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you're saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman, feverishly. Why not the second? A, a coincidence, stammered the old man. Go get it and wish, cried his wife, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. He has been dead for ten days, and besides, he... I would not tell you else, but... I, I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back, cried the old woman, and dragged him towards the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlor, and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place, and a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him, ere he could escape the room seized upon him. And he caught his breath as he found that he had lost the direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat, he felt his way around the table and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish! She cried in a strong voice. It is foolish and wicked, he faltered. Wish! repeated the wife. He raised his hand. I wish my son was alive again. The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank, trembling into a chair as the old woman, with burning eyes, walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle end, which had burned below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls until with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back to his bed, and a minute afterward, the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but sat silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time screwing up his courage, he took the box of matches and, striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs, the match went out, and he paused to strike another. And at the same moment, a knock came so quiet and stealthy as to be scarcely audible, sounded on the front door. The matches fell from his hand and spilled in the passage. He shook motionless, 
his breath suspended until the knock was repeated. Then he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. What's that? cried the old woman, starting up. A rat, said the old man in shaking tones. A rat. It passed me on the stairs. His wife sat up in bed listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. It's Herbert. She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the arm, held her tightly. What are you going to do? He whispered hoarsely. It's my boy. It's Herbert, she cried, struggling mechanically. I forgot it was two miles away. What are you holding me for? Let go. I must open the door. For God's sake, don't let it in, cried the old man, trembling. You're afraid of your old son, she cried, struggling. Let me go. I'm coming, Herbert. I'm coming. There was another knock and another. The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called after her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice strained and panting. The bolt, she cried loudly, come down, I can't reach it. For her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If only he could find it before the thing outside got in. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in front of the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly, although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back and the door open. Cold wind rushed up the staircase and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him the courage to run down to her side and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet and deserted road. Ah, you truly can't beat the classics, can you? <laughs> this story has been shared many times, many ways, so I wouldn't be surprised if you're already familiar with the legend. But I think the story does quite well in delivering its message, as did all of them truly. Of be careful what you wish for. But we have reached the end of this, our New Year's special. May you reach your goals in this upcoming year, and remember the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. I promise you, going around and giving the world compassion will get you the respect and admiration you crave and deserve. That is your free advice from me, your local demon of misfortune. <laughs> Now, if you have any scary stories you'd like to share with me, you can at me at any of my socials located in the description, or email them to me at luckymisfortune at gmail.com. That's L-U-C-K-Y-M-S-F-O-R-T-U-N-E at gmail. While you're checking the description, you may notice links to Patreon, Coffee, and OnlyFans. For those who wish to support the show financially and are able to, those are the current options. Remember, financial support is never necessary to be a fan of the show. That all said, I do hope that you enjoy your new year. How's about that new year's kiss now? Hmm? 
Wow.